a listener production. Okay. <clears throat> oh my God, I'm so excited for this because the Oprah interview was last night and it's just all we want to talk about. But please <laughs> take it away, my dulcet toned Adonis. <laughs> There's a sexy voice again. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to share at a dinner party. And yes, Rosie, I can't remember the last time you and I were in two different locations watching the same program on TV <laughs> and texting each other about it. And we had so much to say, but we decided that we were going to preserve most of it until we actually had the microphones in front of us today. I am mm. Cheryl. You have lots to download about. Yes. And I can't believe that you, yesterday I messaged you and I was like the Oprah interview tonight and you were like, oh, I won't watch it. I'll just let you tell me about it in breaking <laughs> news. And I was like, get effed. I live with the world's like youngest 60 year old who does not care about this. I need to talk to someone about it. You have to watch it. Mm. So I made you watch it. Are you glad that I did? I really am because I did not think that I would care. I didn't think that I would have the sort of visceral emotional reactions that I had to what it was that I was watching. All right. Well, okay. Technically it's breaking news and I forgot the song last week, so I better quickly do it now. (gasps) (laughs) Breaking news, breaking news. I got the scoop. See, extra, extra. Read all about it. Breaking news. It's coming down the wire. <laughs> oh, good, you didn't forget. Well done. <laughs> that's, an, that's an official edition now. It's coming down the wire. <laughs> okay, yeah, just let's, we, there's some Melissa Caddick updates, but, you know, Oprah, mm-hmm. Oprah, Oprah. Megs and Harry on Oprah. Initial thoughts. Oh, my God, go. Number one, Oprah's wig. Incredible. I could look at that amazing. for 10 amazing. hours in a row. She looked yeah. stunning. I did, I have to say, find it very difficult to believe that Megan was just so naive walking into this and that she'd never Didn't even Google? Googled Harry. <laughs> Come on. Of course she did. I found that such a weird thing to just tell the truth. Yeah. Like, just, of course you Googled him. Mm. I mean, uh, I, you know, I Google people that I, like, have one Twitter exchange with. Like, you, of course she Googled him. Yes. But anyway, that was just a weird thing to not be honest, be honest about. I think. Anyway. Yeah, and I didn't let that then skew my perspective on the other things that she had to say mm. from that point onwards. I just compartmentalised that. I think the one thing that stuck with me the most out of the whole thing was how shocked Oprah was at the fact that Harry said that he'd felt trapped his entire life but hadn't Mm. even realised that he'd felt it until he met Meghan. So, I mean, she just seemed to keep harping on about that, that she was like, how could you possibly have felt trapped? You were a prince. From my point of view, I think, of course, they're all trapped. They were all born into this machine that they're not allowed to escape with all these rules that they have to follow for the rest of their life. Their destiny sort of plotted out for them. Um, So I thought Mm. that was interesting that she doesn't see the royal family in that way. Oh, I think she does, though. I think she was just being a good interviewer. Like, I mean, you cannot be interviewing a prince and he tells you, like, a the most privileged cis white straight man in the world, one of them, and he tells you that he's felt trapped his entire life. It's her job to press him on that and to get him to explain and to be specific. She can't sit there and let him just say that and then go, yeah, I get it. Like, 
Don't you reckon? If she hadn't have pushed back on that, people would have been pissed off. Okay. Yeah. I, I was glad that from. she forced him to explain it. Okay. Yeah. All right. That does make sense if she was speaking on behalf of all of the viewers who probably just see yeah. the royals as having all the power and all the freedom in the world. Yeah. But her asking for more explanation would help all of them to understand better what he means when, you know, he's talking about the fact that he actually is powerless in a lot of ways. Like, not everybody's listened to, you know, the Diana episodes of You're Wrong About and looked into this stuff and thought about it deeply. A lot of people are just sitting down to watch an Oprah interview with a prince Mm. and his wife who, like, stole him from the royal family. Like, it was, I think it's her job as a good interviewer to kind of contextualise that for people and and when he said that he had felt trapped his whole, like he'd been trapped his whole life, I mean, Caleb was sitting next to me and Caleb was like, oh, come on. Like he, Caleb was like, get air. Really? And so then when, yeah. And so when Oprah like forced him to explain, and I think a lot of people would have had the exact same reaction. Wow. Okay. Yep. Fair enough. I am projecting my own perception onto everyone else. Yeah. Mm. Um, what I found fascinating was, I mean, the interview itself, obviously, but also what happened in the lead up to the interview was so transparent on the part of the royal family. And like, so, I mean, she said that they have a system of using the press like to their advantage Mm. um, and leaks come out of the palace or don't come out of the palace to support certain stories and whatever. And in the lead up to this interview... I wrote down as every time I saw them. Mm. So about a week before this interview came out, the palace announced that it was launching an investigation into accusations by previous assistants that Meghan had bullied them. Mm-hmm. So that came out a week ago. Um, never thought to launch an investigation into uh, the man who was accused of being a pedophile and sleeping with a sex traffic young girl, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, then there was another story about a pair of earrings that... Megan had been given as a gift at her wedding that she wore that were actually blood diamond earrings given to her by the leader of a country that had an American journalist executed. Mm. So that story came out. Mm. Then a day after that, a story came out that the charity that Harry and Megan had developed in the UK is now being investigated for dodginess in the way they've transferred it over to America and funds have been misappropriated. Mm. Then it came out that um, in the lead-up to the wedding, staff at Buckingham Palace were calling Harry the hostage. Oh! And then on top of all of that, the palace released footage of William and Kate talking to a 12-year-old over Zoom who was thanking them because this particular 12-year-old had been so depressed they'd felt suicidal and they had texted the um, app that Kate and William have played a part in developing that helps young people when they feel trapped by mental illness. So all of this horrible stuff came out about Megan Mm. and then a video of William and Kate talking to a 12-year-old thanking them for saving his life. comes out of the palace and all of this comes out in the days before the Oprah interview. And so I found that really effing telling because, as Megan said, and Harry also intimated in the video, that they have a lot of respect for the Queen, Mm. they really like her, they have a lot of affection for her, but they did kind of both keep implying that the institution, as they Mm. kept calling it, is run by people that the Queen has no 
kind of control over. Like mm. it is a business that is run by senior staff members. Mm. She is the face of that business, but she doesn't have a lot to do with all of that stuff that's going on. Mm. And so I think it really was, you know, and is those senior staff members that pull manipulative shit like this mm-hmm. and who are real dicks. Mm-hmm. That seemed to be what they were kind of implying, don't you reckon? Yeah, real dicks and lacking subtlety. Like, it's so oh, transparent what they were oh, trying so to do. so transparent. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that was another real standout, that sort of symbiotic relationship that they spoke about. And I had a big gasp moment when they were talking about the fact that the tabloids have their Christmas party at Buckingham Palace yeah. every year because, yeah. you know, the tabloids only exist because the royals exist and the royals only stay relevant because the tabloids mm. continue to tell everyone that they should give a shit about what this particular family is doing. And, of course, yes, the, yeah. the institution can only continue and thrive and grow if they're manipulating everything to go the way that's going to be most profitable for them. Otherwise, they're all going to be well, out of a job. What I don't understand is... <laughs> How, and and Harry said this at one point too, how did they not see and understand that Meghan was one of the best things optics-wise, mm. media-wise, just everything, like the, one of the best things that could have possibly happened to the modern-day royal family? Yeah. Like how could they have treated her so badly? Like the fact that she went to them and said she was feeling suicidal and she needed medical help and they were like, mm, soz, no. Or like the fact that um, they knew all these stories were coming out about her and they weren't correcting them. The fact that they told Harry she would have to keep working as an actress because they weren't willing to pay for her. Mm. Well, like all these things... They basically, all they had to do was be nice to her. Mm. Like, why was that so hard? Yeah. I don't understand. Like, all they had to do was be nice to her. She's like this this intelligent, brilliant woman of colour. I will say I find her a little insufferable with all her crunchy, just be positive, support each other, girl boss rhetoric. I hate, mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. I find all that stuff a bit insufferable. That's why I've said before I'm, the last thing I will ever do in my life is listen to their podcast. But um, <laughs> but she's an intelligent, brilliant woman of color. Mm. She she would have bring she would have brought like a sense of modernism and diversity to the royal family. And they just were like, no thanks. We'll stick with our stiff British upper lip nonsense. Mm. I don't get it. It is really confusing, and I'm absolutely with you. I have learned more about her in the last 24 hours than I ever even thought I would care to know. And I do really like her. Yeah. It's just a shame that she does continue to use words like authenticity so frequently. Yeah, I know. Because it is <laughs> a big turn off for me. But yes, I think that she's really likable. I think that she's really relatable. It doesn't make sense mm. to me that they didn't treat her as an asset until we start thinking about how many of the people who are buying the magazines and are clicking on the links that tell stories about her that are inherently racist or are deeply mm. religious and don't like the fact that she's divorced or don't like the fact that she's older or that she's from another country and, you know, have all these different prejudices against her. And there's probably a very large pool of people out there who are more likely to buy a magazine with a cover that's tearing her to shreds because they want to see her being treated as a villain than they are something that's Mm. going to be lauding her as a hero because she doesn't fit their preconceived notion of what a British princess should be. But that's the people, though. I mean, what about what the family itself thinks of her? Mm. I mean, it seems like they just completely 
rejected having her around in any kind of capacity in which she could be used to her full potential to help them as an institution. Like, Mm. I mean, and I don't think that can all come down to them just going, oh, well, the tabloids don't like her, so we can't either. Like, it seems like there's there's clearly inherent racism in the family. I mean, that stuff about how dark the baby's skin would be was just Mm. shocking and that, Mm. that iconic moment already of Oprah just going, what? Yeah. It's mm. like memed everywhere because it was shocking even to Oprah. But um, I there's just seems to be something bizarre about them and that Harry implied that it was their trip to Australia where they saw just how brilliant she was at the job and where they saw how popular she was. Mm. Because you have to remember that when it when they first got together, people loved her. She was super popular. People loved her, loved their whole shtick. There was racist stuff in the tabloids always, but by and large, she was incredibly, like, um, embraced by the public and people loved them as a couple. They were like the golden couple for a while. And it did kind of flip at one point, and it does, if you look back, seem to be after that Australian tour, and he says the family were jealous by how good she was at the role. Mm. And it's quite well known that Charles um, doesn't like how big the royal family is and he has this plan when he comes into power, when he takes over from the Queen, to have a stripped-down royal family that focuses just on him and the direct line of succession. So Mm. he's important, William's important. That little kid, what's his name? The next George. George is important. And I was watching because there's a whole bunch of extra clips came out Um, Oprah went on CBS morning show the next day, which is hosted by her bestie Gail, Mm. and gave them a whole bunch of, like, extra clips. Um, And there was one quite long one where they talked about Meghan's dad and all the stuff that happened with that because I was really surprised that didn't come up, but it Mm. actually did come up in the wider interview. It just got cut for time, so they showed it the next day on TV. But um, one of the things that Oprah said that really struck me was back in 2018 when her and Harry were sort of first dating and, and I think they got engaged or whatever and they were talking and Megan said to Oprah, I've been told by the institution that um, I need to try and dial myself down by 50%, that I'm 50% too much. Mm-hmm. And Oprah said to her, how can you live your life only being half of yourself? Mm-hmm. Like this is going to be really hard for you. And so even back at the start they were telling her, tone it down, Megs. Mm-hmm. Like, you're too dazzling and good at this. Yeah. But why don't you want them to be dazzling and good at it? It sounds like there's a lot of pettiness involved. Pettiness and jealousy because they all become that much paler when they're next to her. Mm. And um, I guess in a way it sort of shines, you know, a light on the cobwebs of the whole institution and how very outdated it is. Exactly like Diana did. Yeah. So the better she looks, the worse they look. And that was probably something that was a bit intimidating and threatening and... I just don't think that has to be true if you're willing to embrace her and learn from her. I think Harry is a great example of someone who grew up extremely privileged, grew Mm. up in a bubble that he didn't even realise he was in, admitted that he had no idea race was going to be a problem, and then he said... But I tell you what, when you're walking in someone else's shoes, it doesn't take you very long to see just how much race is a part of this. Mm. And that's because he's learning and growing and embracing from embracing lessons from listening to the woman that he loves. Like all they had to do was embrace her and learn from her and let her be like 
blend into the institution, but mm. it's like they're just not willing to do that. Mm. And that's why everyone yesterday was just saying, effing abolish the monarchy. <laughs> they suck. Yes, it's long overdue. I hope that this is a catalyst that helps push towards that. I'd love mm. to see it happen in our lifetime. I'm sceptical that it will. But, I mean, this thing cannot last forever. It should not still be around. Um, and I would yeah. love nothing more than if they do start dismantling this whole unnecessary, expensive, damaging institution. There are some people, though, who watched the interview and thought that, you know, Harry and Meghan are lying opportunists. Yeah, what was so the backlash? I don't, I don't... I mean, it's just the people who hate them anyway, like Piers Morgan, that British Ugh. commentator uh. or whatever. Um just a lot of people saying basically like cry me a river, you just wanted to go make money. But I think it was fair enough. Like I couldn't believe it when Harry admitted that the the royal family cut them off from all their security mm. and the person who looked after them and gave them a home and paid for their security was Hollywood superstar Tyler Perry. <laughs> like yes. he stepped in and saved the day. Yeah. Like are you kidding me? And so then he said, you know what, like, did we think we'd be signing this massive Netflix and Spotify deal, which, fair enough, I have made fun of in the last few months, but mm. he said, we needed the money. Mm. Like, and people say, do you really need that much money? And it's like, actually, yes. Mm. Security costs like $10 million a year. Like, it's a lot. You need, you do need money to pay for that stuff. So when he explained it that way, I was like, oh, okay. Mm. I'm not going to listen to your insufferable podcast, but I don't begrudge you getting paid for it because mm. you need to keep your family safe. It's not like me saying I need to keep my family safe. He's a prince who married a woman of colour. There are scary racists. There are scary death threats. There are legitimately people who, crazy people who probably want to hurt them. You need around-the-clock security for the rest of your life. Yeah. That costs a lot of money. That seems so vindictive and irresponsible that they would do that, that to they him, did that. put him in that position. Yeah. And like he said, there's been no changes to the risk or the threat um, to my life yeah. and my family's life, but just because you're changing my title, you're exposing yeah. me to all of that risk, which, if anything, yeah. is likely to increase now because people hate me more than ever. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God, it's so beautiful. Yeah. So it'll be, I mean, this is, we watched this last night, this episode we're recording today on um, Tuesday and this episode doesn't come out till Friday. So I'll be very interested to see what happens in the next few days. Mm. Fallout from the palace or who knows what. Oh, Melissa Caddick. So <laughs> the belly button, the mm. torso, the intestines, not hers. Mm. So that means all we have so far is the foot in the shoe and a lot of people are saying that they are now convinced that she cut her own foot off to throw people off the scent. And <laughs> that could be true. It's I mean, a dark theory, but it's where my head went straight away. And the police have even said, look, it's unlikely, but it's not impossible. Mm. And also people have said that that foot in that, sh the shoe at least, would have barnacles and stuff on it from being in the ocean after, like, 10 days. Mm -hmm. And they didn't find it for, what, four months? Mm -hmm. And it looked fresh. Mm -hmm. The shoe, not the foot. I think the foot was a bit bleh. Mm -hmm. And so people are still saying they don't think she just, like, left her house and went and took her own life that day. Mm -hmm. They do think she only died recently. They're just not sure how. But um, I... I'm starting to be one of the 
crazy conspiracy theorist who thinks she cut off her own foot. Because mm-hmm. if you're that rich, get yourself a good quality... Um, Prosthetic. What do you call it? Prosthetic? Off you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I don't know. I did read, though, um, there was an interview um, on 60 Minutes the other week with um, her... I feel bad still calling him this, uh, her sex idiot husband's um, (laughs) family. Poor guy. He does seem like just a bit of a dummy who's really overwhelmed that all of this has happened. And his dad was interviewed by 60 Minutes and he was saying he just does not have the capacity to understand this. Mm. Um, And when, like, ASIC came and raided the house and he was, like, up until a few days ago talking about suing them, suing them for raiding the house, like, suing them for her disappearance, like, saying that it was all a setup, they'd gotten it wrong, and they sort of had to sit down and explain to him, no, the evidence is overwhelming, like, she has done this. (laughs) And he, like, just didn't realise. And so... It sounds like she really pulled the wool over everyone's eyes, mm. including her own family. She took money from her her parents, her brother, her husband's parents. Wow. So, yeah. She had no scruples. Okay. Okay. Mm. Well, keep us posted on that. I have to say I kind of feel for the people of the south coast of New South Wales. I had no idea that there were just constant bodies washing ashore for them. No. <laughs> and one more little thing that I want to tell you that I heard yesterday. Mm. So um, you did a wonderful episode where you gave us just the gist on the Great Australian Emu War. Yeah. (laughs) It was announced yesterday or the day before that a movie is being made about it, (laughs) written by, developed by and starring John Cleese and Rob Schneider. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Huh? That's Did a, you read about this? No. I, I'm so thrilled about it, though, because I did hear the other day it's that there's be apparently... It's a train wreck. Oh, yeah, it'll be horrendous. They're also making two video games as well, neither of which do you oh get to play from the point of view of the emu, which is a massive misunderstanding. Oh, the winning side. Yeah. The winning side. <laughs> John Cleese and Rob Schneider, what a combo. Like, it is going to just be the most like offensive slapstick Aussie stereotypes. Mm. Like I'm so here for it. I can't wait. Let's get drunk and have a viewing party. It's going to be amazing. So I just saw that the other day and I was like, what? (laughs) What? Do they even know what it was? Someone joked like, does John Cleese think it's still ongoing? (laughs) Do they like? (laughs) I really hope he plays the emu. So yeah, that's um pretty much breaking news uh for the for the week. Do 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 breaking news. Oh, the Oprah interview <sighs> just bloody well took it out of me. Oh, um also tickets to our shows. Just the gist is now I think almost sold out in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. Might be sold out by the time this episode airs, mm-hmm. but um go and check anyway because there might be a few little tickets left over. Melbourne Comedy Fest is a few tickets left. And I think by now we would have announced that Sydney's on sale and that's it for now so far. And Perth, yes. And I must also stress that in all of those cities also is my solo show, Kid Chameleon. Please come watch. Hooray. Book tickets. Just um, go to my Instagram or whatever. Um, But, yes, so 
Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, Kid Chameleon and Just the Gist live shows in all of your cities. We can't wait to see you there. And Kid Chameleon is fantastic. If Rosie remembers half of it, um, it is worth yes. coming out for. Because <laughs> I've seen it I a am, few times and it's I am getting a brilliant. bit stressed. I literally did perform it at Adelaide Fringe Festival last year and then COVID happened and then a few weeks ago, my tour manager was like, okay, so we've booked in all your shows for this year. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to go look at that. <laughs> That's, uh, hopefully I've still got that on my computer because I don't know why I was in that show. <laughs> so, um, yeah, come just for the excitement of whether or not I may completely crash and burn on stage. <laughs> Wouldn't that, I mean, that'd be a thing. That'd be a scene, wouldn't well, it? It's a spectacle to behold. I might have seen it happen in the past and um, it was a good show. Yes. No, I've never crashed and burned on stage. <laughs> no, you haven't. Please. Not since drama school. No. Not since drama school. Um, yeah. So, yeah, come to our shows and um, that's it. All right. What are you giving me just the gist of today, my love? All right, I am today telling you a story about a plucky group of filmmakers and actors who were tricked into making a full-length feature film that was based on the Fantastic Four comic books, fully believing that this was going to be their big career break that was going to launch them no. into the global centre stage. But then just before the movie was due to premiere and after they'd spent months doing publicity tours and building hype for the release of the movie, they were told that the movie was never going to be released, that it was never intended to be released, and they had just been caught up in a great big scam to make one man a lot of money. Yeah. Oh, heartbreaking. It is. But also juicy and I want to hear it. <laughs> it is kind of heartbreaking. And I do feel a bit sadistic that I've kept laughing about this anytime I've thought no. about it over the last couple of weeks. This is like the just the gist version of watching the early episodes of American Idol where they let you laugh at all the shit people. <laughs> Everybody yeah, likes laughing at the shit people. Yeah. Anybody who doesn't admit that. Aren't reality shows way less fun now that they've, like, decided to focus on kindness and not on laughing at people who are terrible and think they're good? That's the best part of the whole show. Uh, it's That's definitely not the case with Drag Race, and that is the only reality show oh. that I actually watch. Um, and, I mean, they go out <laughs> of their way to torture the contestants by pushing them right outside their comfort zone, and they only show you the worst bits. So Heaven. Yes. Got to get in that. Okay. All right. Well, tell me about this then. <clears throat> All right. So title for this one, we're calling this The Fantastic Fraud. Question before you start, I'm already dying to know, is anyone in this fraud movie a famous person now? Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that would have been good though. Okay. All right. Okay. No household <laughs> names. No. I mean, they all did Aww. go on to have okay careers and some of their faces might be recognisable to you if you're the type of person who has seen every single episode of Charmed or every single episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You might spot mm. their face and go, oh, you were in that thing. Um, mm. But for the most part. No. Mm. Okay. All right. Tell us about this fraud movie. Okay. So the... I love laughing at other people's misfortune. <laughs> I'm a terrible person. Okay. Keep going. We're in a safe space. <laughs> we're all allowed to do this together. Yeah. Get it out of our system okay. and then we can be nice people mm -hmm. when we're out in the real world. 
All right, so we'll go ahead and begin in January of 1994. The biggest song in the charts at the time was Mariah Carey's Hero and (gasps) the new black, the flavour of the month, was superhero movies. People were starting to actually really get excited about superhero movies for the first time, mostly because the Batman movies had been so successful in the late 80s and early 90s. Oh, yes. One of my all-time favourite movies from back then was... Batman Returns, the um, Catwoman, super like, yeah, with Cat done by Tim Burton, super dark Catwoman, and I swear to God, I thought she was the hero of that movie. I didn't realize she was a villain. Mm-hmm. I I made my mum make me like I had these shiny black tights and this shiny black like leotard, and um, I'd like put all white stitching through it so I looked like Catwoman, and I would go out in the backyard and like and, like, throw little, like, makeshift throwing stars like she had. God, I love Michelle Pfeiffer in that movie. It is absolutely iconic, yes. Iconic. Um, So, yeah, prior to that, superhero movies really not so much a big deal at all, but hype was starting to build. And thousands of people around the world were so excited because finally they were making a Fantastic Four movie. And the Fantastic Four had had a really dedicated fan base all the way back from 1961 when their first comic was released. And they sort of reinvigorated and redefined what a superhero comic book could be like, particularly when it had a team of people and they had their sort of dynamic Um, and interactions in there that made comic books feel a bit more adult. Prior to the Fantastic Four, they all felt very sort of childish. So Mm. all these people had gone to special screenings of trailers for the movie and they'd seen trailers on their VHS tapes that they were watching at home and they'd seen ads in magazines and posters all around the place. They'd seen, in a lot of cases, the actors appearing at comic book conventions and then all of a sudden when people were getting excited to buy their tickets to go to a screening or they'd been invited to a premiere, it was just announced, nope, the movie's being pulled. All of the screenings are being cancelled and the cast and crew were just suddenly notified this movie is never going ahead, no one is ever going to see it. And you can imagine how crushed and crestfallen they all were. And so this is 1994. That's right, yes. Right, okay. And they just watched their career launch pad suddenly disappear from them. This was going to be, you know, their career-defining moment and after all the time and energy and enthusiasm they'd put into the project, it was all just being cancelled and it was at that point that they found out that they had just been pawns that had been used by a film producer who needed to make sure that he kept the rights to the Fantastic Four characters and at the same time wanted to gouge Marvel for a whole lot of cash in the process. So the making of the film, the marketing of the film, that had all been one elaborate blackmail plot, which began back in 1992. So, All right, tell us what happened. If we go back to that point, the producer that we're talking about, his name is Bernd Eichinger, but we're just going to call him Uncle Bernie for the rest of this story for the purpose of ease. 
he owned a production company that had bought the film and TV rights to the Fantastic Four in 1986. He was a huge Mm -hmm. fan of the comic books and he promised Stan Lee, if you give me the rights to these characters, I will make an enormous blockbuster that's going to be bigger than Superman. Batman wasn't around at that point, but he had bigger visions Mm. than the Batman movies. He wanted to get a studio to back him with $100 to $150 million and he was going to set new global box office records with the Fantastic Four movie that he promised he was going to make. Now, at this point, Marvel and Stan Lee were quite happy to just sell off the rights to pretty much all of their characters because it was a pretty easy revenue stream for them and they were just very much focused on the comic books, not so much the movies. So Uncle Bernie got the rights to the characters and then he tried to go ahead and get the movie made, but he couldn't get backers. And the tricky thing is when you own the rights to characters, you lose those rights if you don't actually go into production making something within Mm -hmm. a certain time frame. So he kept pitching to studio after studio to get the finances to make a Fantastic Four movie, but no one was willing to give him the money because it was just too risky at that point. No Marvel superhero movie had ever been profitable in any way. Had he made any movies before this? Like, is there a reason that Stan Lee, who is like, from what I understand, I don't know a lot about comics, but Mm. Stan Lee's like a legendary comic book writer, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, so he wouldn't just sell the rights... I mean, I know you said they sell. It's an easy way to make money selling the rights to your characters or your comics, but they wouldn't just sell it to any schmuck. Like, had, did this guy have any kind yeah. of reputation? His or? production company was called New Constantine, and yes, they had made some pretty mm. reputable movies over the course of the previous few decades. So, you know, they felt like it was in pretty safe hands, and he was kind of right. he was promising the world, but then he just couldn't actually deliver, and so. Yeah. Between 1986 to 1992, he'd been trying to pitch with no luck and he knew that the end of his contract was going to come up on the 31st of December 1992 and then all the rights would revert back to Marvel. So he begged Mm -hmm. Stanley, please just give me an extension. I know that I'm going to find someone who believes in me to make this movie. And Stan said no, because by this point in 1992, as the superhero craze was starting to take off, Stan Lee and Marvel realised we could probably actually make a lot of money if we start making our own movies, so let's try to get the rights back to all of our characters. So they just wanted Uncle Bernie's rights and his contract to just... Um, fall off a cliff, yes. Um, So then they could make like their own equivalent movies of Batman and Batman Returns and make a huge Mm -hmm. profit. Uncle Bernie was not going to give up though. He could see that he was about to lose this golden opportunity that he'd been sitting on. Mm. And so he decided the only way that he was going to keep the rights that he had, which were, you know, the key to his potential future success was to make a movie really fast and really cheap. It was already September at this point, which meant he only had three months to get it done. Question, does he have to have finished by the deadline or just have started? Production just has to have started. They have to be actually filming on a set before the 31st of December. Okay. The quality of what he was making did not really matter <laughs> to an extent. It just had to be a legitimate production where they had, you know, certain roles were filled with crew, cast members, yeah. etc. It's not like he could just have his home video recorder and he'd be filming his niece dressed up as the invisible yeah, yeah, girl yeah. or something. It just had to stand <laughs> up in court as I'm yeah. actually making a, an effort to make a profit film that I hope to be profitable for all parties. 
Like you sold me the rights to your stories and characters and I'm actually putting in effort to make a good movie. Yeah. But he just wanted to invest the minimum because he knew that whatever money he put into this thing was just going to be blown. So he decided he was willing to put a million dollars into this to create a movie that was going to be buried. It was just going to serve the purpose of continuing his rights to the characters. Okay, wait, another question. Why does he want to continue his rights to the characters? He's still hoping to actually get a movie made one day. That's right. Yes. And so he's okay. So this is so (laughs) dumb. So he's, he knows that his contract and his right to use the Fantastic Four is about to run out. Mm -hmm. So, but he hasn't found anyone Mm -hmm. to give him money to make a big blockbuster movie yet. Mm -hmm. So in order to not lose the rights to the characters, he just starts making the shittiest movie he can get away with Mm -hmm. to say, I'm making the movie, and he's hoping that in the meantime money will come in and he can start actually making a proper movie. That's right. By making this This really shitty version of the movie, he buys himself another six years of owning the Fantastic Four. Oh, he gets another six years. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow, this is like the real life Bowfinger. Have you seen that movie with Steve? Oh Martin? yes, that's worth another watch. Everyone, go back and watch yes. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Okay, okay. So basically, pressures on to just put something together so mm-hmm. he can keep the rights. That's right. Yeah. Now, when you're in okay. the sort of situation that he found himself in, where you've got a tiny budget and a minimal time mm. frame, the best person that you can get on board to work with is a guy called Roger Corman. He was Mm. known as the Pope of Pop Cinema and the King of the B-Movie because he had this, you know, prolific career where he made really schlocky movies that had their very own unique sort of special aesthetic. Almost all of the titles Mm. had an exclamation point in them and they were (laughs) things like Monster from the Ocean Floor, exclamation pork, the pork, exclamation mark. Exclamation pork. Uh, that sounds like a um like a, a weird like sex move. <laughs> Exclamation pork. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing at Mardi Gras? <laughs> <laughs> Holy exclamation pork, Rosie. <laughs> Oh, my God, I'm going to say that next time I'm in bed with Caleb. (gasps) Exclamation point. One day I think we're going to end up making merchandise with that on it. I think that's my new catchphrase. We are. Yeah. Exclamation Um, pork. (laughs) Oh, my God. Any Seriously, any artist listeners, oh, my God, do us a design of exclamation pork immediately. Please, we can't wait to see it. Um, But, yes. Monster from the Ocean Floor, Attack of the Crab Monster, exclamation pork. The Beast with a Million Eyes, mm-hmm. exclamation pork. Exclamation pork. Yeah, okay. So. Kind of like how Lifetime movies are made in a week today. Exactly. Just like movie after movie after yep. movie after Churn movie. Churn yep. them out. Um, everything looked very sort of soap opera in a way. So like a yeah. grittier version of, do you remember Passions in the late 90s, yeah, yeah, early yeah. 2000s? Oh, yeah. of course. Timmy and Tabitha, please. Yeah. Yeah. But he was very well respected because he actually gave a lot of actors their big break. So like Jack Nicholson mm. and Sylvester Stallone, the first movies they were ever in were Roger Corman movies. And mm. Roger Corman mentored James Cameron and Martin Scorsese at the beginning of their career. Yeah. So he was like. Well, I mean. 
a lot of actors say now that they get their, it's the way a lot of um, Australian actors get their start in Home and Away, Neighbours. It's where you learn mm. how to get lines done fast, how to shoot fast, how to frame things fast, how to, like, and it's the same with Lifetime movies in the US. It's like, that is, like, really... I mean, I know as two drama school alumni, uh, we probably shouldn't tell you that it's a waste of money, but it is because you learn on the job. <laughs> the best training ground is on the job. Mm -hmm. And so jobs like that are where people learn. Yeah. And because he spent so little on making the movies, they actually all were very profitable, which is another reason that so many people respected him. Mm. So Uncle Bernie came to Roger and said, could you help me get this thing off the ground? And Roger was like, I can, but you understand what it's going to look like. And Bernie was just blatant when saying, I don't care what it looks like at all. It just has to start production before the 31st. Yeah. So Roger agreed. Just make me fantastic for exclamation pork. <laughs> yes. That's what he wants. Um, <laughs> so Roger made the plan, set the budget, got people on board, and they started shooting mm -hmm. on the 28th of December, just before the deadline Oof, ran out. Just before. Now, everyone at Roger's studio was super excited because this was a big surprise that they did not see coming. To have the opportunity to create a movie with this level of brand recognition was enormous. Mm. So for all of them, this was just going to look phenomenal on their resumes. And Roger pulled together some of the best people that he'd worked with before, directors, editors, costume designers. He knew that they could get shit done very, very quickly and they were all the yeah. opposite of perfectionists. Like they were all near enough is good enough type of people. Love it. And they began mm -hmm. working around the clock straight away. They wrote seven very quick drafts of the script, which I have to say they were very committed to staying true to the comic books because they really wanted to deliver something that the fans were going to love. They started casting immediately and basically said, we're happy to take whoever is available. But they got hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of actors who were really interested because this was a big mm. opportunity. It's potentially going to be a big new franchise. So you couldn't turn this sort of opportunity down. I cannot get over how much this is the real life Bowfinger. Yeah. I bet he probably based a lot of that on this. Wouldn't be surprised. So similar. Yeah. yeah. This has become Hollywood yeah. lore over the last few decades. <gasps> okay. Um, yeah. I mean, yes, the script seemed a bit shit and the whole production seemed a bit chonky. And also they knew walking into their audition, they were only going to be paid a maximum of three and a half thousand dollars a week for the three mm. weeks of production. So this wasn't going to make them very hey, much money at all. But when you're new to Hollywood and you want to be a star, mm. you take anything. Absolutely. this It's just, a movie. You're, you're making a movie. Yeah, and you get your name and your face yeah. out there to hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people. So um, mm. Patrick Warburton read for them for one <gasps> of the roles. Yes. Ah, um, really? Mark Ruffalo read for them. And obviously <gasps> a couple of decades later he would end up being the Hulk <laughs> for Marvel. Actually, in Marvel movies, yeah. yeah. Um, they did not get the role, which may have been because <laughs> of their availability. Fortuitous for them. Um, oh, yeah. yes, lucky for them. They did dodge a bullet. Um, <laughs> the actors that were cast were the ones that were happy to start shooting pretty much immediately the day after Christmas, which was the day after Christmas they were all brought together for the first cast meeting where it was made very clear to them, we have no time, we have no money but we have a lot of hope, we've got a lot of gumption and we've still got some yeah. expectations for what this can deliver for all of us. We all are here mm -hmm. because we want to be famous and successful, so let's do this. And all of the actors 
took it as a huge compliment that they'd been cast in this role because they knew Roger's work and they knew that he had faith in them that they would be able to always hit their mark and deliver their line on the first take. He was famous for only ever wanting to do one take of any scene. So they saw it as acknowledgement that they were really, really good at their craft and they were very flattered that they'd been cast in this thing. They just couldn't wait until they were seeing their faces on posters and on screens all around the world. So, yeah, it makes. Why wouldn't they think that? I mean, yes, it's not the biggest budget movie in the world, but you're still making a movie with recognized people in the industry. Mm. You have no reason to think that it's not a real thing Mm. that's happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they got super committed, and like to the point where the guy who was playing. The villain in the movie, Dr. Von Doom, Mm. he went very Heath Ledger in Joker. Like he went very method, always Uh, stayed in character, wouldn't make friends with anyone else in the cast, said that they would always be terrified when he was around. The rest of the group, they did daily bonding exercises and they all just, you know, pumped each other up and chose to be really positive and Oh, my God, you and I know just how seriously actors take themselves. Mm -hmm. It would have been insufferable, insufferable. (laughs) Yeah, and collectively they just sort of agreed we're just going to ignore all of the shonky stuff that was going on around them on the set, like the fact that they were being served bologna sandwiches for lunch every day. Oh, (laughs) that's not good. No. (laughs) They were shooting for up to 12 hours a day in sets that were literally falling down around them because obviously this wasn't filmed in a proper studio. It was filmed in an old barn (gasps) in Venice But it's a movie, Jacob. It's a movie. (laughs) They're in show business. They're going to be stars. They're making the magic happen in a building that had been condemned by the fire department. It was crawling with rats and there were signs everywhere saying, enter at your own risk and you've been warned. (laughs) They all had to sign things saying that they weren't going to sue if they were injured in any way. They just ignored all of that because they were making the magic. This is... They're going to be stars. This is Hollywood. When it came time to meet with the costume designer, they knew that they were going to have very, very little to work with, but they were surprised that Mm -hmm. they were told, anytime you're not wearing your Fantastic Four uniform, you can just wear your own clothes. So just bring something for your (laughs) own. from your own wardrobe, Um, sweat stains and all. So they just had to sort of dress as their own character, which they sort of went, okay, well, that that gives it a gritty realism. That's that's Mm. cool. We can work with that. Um, And then finally they were given the turtleneck bodysuits that they'd have to wear when they were actually, you know, superhero versions of the Fantastic Four. And they looked very, very homemade with very visible stitching. But they just sort of went, we're going to use that. It makes sense. In the Fantastic Four comic books, one of the characters was the one who sewed the costumes for everybody and, of course, it was the female one because gender dynamics. Yes, I will say, as someone who's, like, you know, worked a bit in television, everything looks dodgy on set Mm. and there is an understanding that it it will translate on camera. Like, everything always looks dodgy. Elaborate costumes are never that elaborate close-up. Like, it's like props always when you see them in person look a bit shit, but then you see it on screen and you're like, whoa, that looks amazing. So there is always this understanding on set, like I'm not the cameraman, I'm not the cinematographer, I'm not the director, I don't know how it's going to look in the end, I just trust that they know it's going to look good. So, mm-hmm. you know. Mm. 
it's like, yeah, it doesn't look that great, but this is, it's movie magic. Yeah. And so they just went with it. They just kept going with it. The one thing that they did actually invest quite a bit in was the face mask for the thing. The thing is the big Hulk-like creature that looks like he's made out of orange rocks. Uh, So they actually made him a proper animatronic face mask that moved kind of oh, like, you know, okay. the um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies from the 90s yeah, yeah, where yeah. they actually had yeah, a yeah, bit yeah. of expression to them. That was the biggest investment that they made in the entire production, that face mask for the thing. Okay. Um, they well, also... Sure. Okay. Well, yeah, that's one thing that's going to be a big draw card <laughs> to get choice, people to come and see yeah, the okay. movie because the thing had a real cult following and they figured if there's one thing that we need to do well... It's going to be that. It's funny because back then they didn't have the technology. Like if you were trying to trick your actors today into thinking they're going to look great on screen, you just get a green texture and put a bunch of green dots on their yeah. face and go, oh, yeah, we're going to, it's, we're just, it's going to all be digital. Yeah. You're going to look amazing. We'll Whereas do they couldn't do that back then. Yeah. yeah. So they had to give him a mask or otherwise mm. he would have been like, guys, what? Like mm-hmm. much easier to pull off this scam now. Yeah. It didn't seem to take a lot to convince these guys. It didn't even bother them that they didn't have rehearsals. They would just show up. They would get their blocking when they were on set. They had to make sure they knew their lines and were in character because they just went ahead and said rolling, action, and then they had to try to get it in one take. And to their credit, they delivered. They were really, really professional about the whole thing. Well, it's the opportunity of their life. Yeah. They weren't going to waste it, of course. Um, Yeah. The crew kind of knew what to expect when they were getting into this because they'd worked with Roger before. They knew that the sets were going to be made of polystyrene foam and they'd be working really long hours and there wouldn't be any monitors on set. So the only person who'd know what was actually being caught on film was going to be the cameraman. (laughs) They were used to the fact that they would have to edit every single day that they shot. So they were literally working around the clock, shoot, edit, shoot, edit every single day. And they really, Mm -hmm. really, really cared to the point where once they'd finished shooting and they all had to move on to different jobs, the director and a few of the editors still came together every night to finish off doing the edit because this was a real passion project for them that was really important. But while that was going on... Uncle Bernie's a dick. Yeah. Mm. Because he did not let anyone in on the fact that this whole thing was a scam and he could have actually told them. You know, yeah, they, he could have. They could have all been let in on. You don't have to try too hard because this thing is actually really just a ploy for me to get what I want long term. Yeah, some Ultimately, more time. This is going to be buried. They had no idea. Um, at the executive level, they were starting to have the discussions about how they were going to make sure that this thing was never actually released. Now. Yeah. Um, by the end of January 1993, they'd almost finished what it was that they were putting together and all of a sudden they just stopped hearing from Uncle Bernie altogether. He was having no contact with anyone in the production. They found out yeah. that the release date had been pushed out by a few months and then pushed out again to September, which they sort of went, okay, well, that's all right. That gives us a bit more time to refine the edit. Yeah. We can actually make it even better than we thought it was going to be. Then Roger Corman told them, look, just pause for a while. I'm not entirely sure what it is that's going on here and I don't know how much money we're going to have to be able to finish Mm. this thing off. But the director and the editor were just super committed. Um, They continued getting together overnight and 
finish off the edit and refining it as best they could. Um, oh, this is heartbreaking. I know. <laughs> they just couldn't let it die, so they kept working on yeah. polishing it while everyone else was sort of scratching their heads and going, what's going on? The director and the yeah. editor got together the last bit of money that they could get to try to find a visual effects guy so that he could help to enhance some of the special effects that they had in the movie. They found this, what they thought was a unicorn of a guy who claimed to have been the visual effects supervisor for Independence Day, but once they saw what <laughs> it is that he delivered, it was pretty obvious that, if anything, he could only have been an intern on Independence Day oh because God, he no. delivered some of the worst graphics that they had ever seen in their careers and they were (laughs) super disappointed but they just tried to do the best with what he left them with and then oh my god I'm dying to see what he gave them I would pay money to see that I'll tell you now it is available and we will post the link you can watch this on daily motion yes I've seen the whole because I mean if they, if these were dodgy visual effects in the early 90s, mm. they had to have been pretty effing dodgy. Oh, yeah. It's like the movie suddenly goes oh from God. being a live action film to being a really, really cruddy cartoon all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Oh, so going, they were disappointed going. they'd blown the last of the money that they had on him, but there were still things that they needed to do. They were desperate to do a couple of small reshoots and they also still needed yeah. to score the movie because they tried truly believed that this thing was going to be released. So when it came to doing the reshoots, they were just borrowing equipment and film from friends of theirs in the industry. And the casting director at one point even dressed up as the thing because they still had access to the costume and they sent him out to try his hand at acting as the thing in the real world. Oh, my God. They shot all the little clips that they needed to just pull the thing together and put a bow on it and make it perfect. And then they found some very talented musicians who said that they were super keen to come on board and score the film for free and they were Mm. willing to pay out of their own pocket to hire a full 48-piece orchestra to play the music that they wrote, all because they believed... They thought it was going to yeah, lead to future work for them. Yeah, it's a good opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Like you are scoring a superhero movie in Hollywood. Mm. That's a big deal. And yeah. they truly did a good job. When you watch the movie and you listen to the music, you can tell. The music's amazing. Yeah. They put <laughs> a lot of effort into it and they hired the best musicians that they could get. Mm. And so then finally, by June, it was all finished and it was ready for release and it was announced in the media that it was going to be released in September. So Mm -hmm. all of the cast started working on promotion of the film from July of 1993. Now, because they were getting no backing from Uncle Bernie anymore and Roger Corman was a bit confused about what it was that was going on, they decided that they, the actors, were just going to pay for a publicist themselves out of their own pockets because it was going to be a good investment in their own careers. Yeah. Um, This, yeah, because I was going to ask you, when you say like they start promoting the film, that's mm. the production company organizes that. Mm-hmm. They send you out to meet journalists, they send you on interviews. But the actors were just like, we're just gonna yep. do that ourselves. Yep. <laughs> oh no. It was the cast and crew who just were not gonna let this thing die on a shelf and they were not going to miss out on this opportunity that was gonna define the rest of their lives potentially. So 
they arranged for this publicist to start getting them interviews, which was actually very easy for the publicist to do because there was so much Mm. interest in the Fantastic Four globally. And so they were invited to come and start appearing at comic book conventions all across the US, which they were doing for months, hyping people up. (gasps) They were showing the trailer for the movie. They were taking photos with fans. They weren't getting paid to do any of this, of course, and they had to pay for all of their own travel. Does the trailer look dodgy? Oh, yeah. Or is the trailer getting people excited? It's getting people excited because they're seeing characters that they recognise on the screen for the first time and it's kind of slickly edited together. I mean, we're looking at it with today's standards of what we expect from a Marvel trailer. Oh, my God, can I watch the trailer right now? Yeah. Okay, what do I Google to watch it? Fantastic Four 1994 film trailer. Oh, my God, I found it. Okay. Oh my God, here we go, here we go. Oh, it looks dodgy, it's looking dodgy already. From the pages of the world's greatest comic book adventure, four heroes on a mission in space, but something went wrong. Genetically transformed, they become the most powerful superheroes of all time. Oh, there's a wedding! Fantastic! Oh, there's a fireman! Four! But the forces of evil are out to destroy their cosmic power. (laughs) Find them! I'm sad. And to survive, they must utilize all their strength. The Fantastic Four! Whoa, okay, well, that was something. You know what that reminds me of? You mm. know um, the Power Rangers show where mm. they film all the footage of all the fight scenes, I think, in Japan because they're mm. all in costumes, and then in America they just film some actors playing the regular dialogue in high school to make it seem like, like and it's all very mm. high school spectacular, Rocker Steadford-esque costumes. yeah. yeah. It really does look like something that some year 10s have made for like a drama video project. Yeah, yeah. And all oh, one of the most Power Ranger-y type things is the villain, Dr. Doom, the guy who was staying away from the rest of the cast so that they'd be terrified yeah. by him because he was wearing a mask that didn't move at all. He does all of his acting through his fingers. So all of his expression <laughs> is just hands, hands, jazz <laughs> fingers all over the place. Jazz fingers. Trying to make it look really menacing, but it all just looks kind of like he's tickling an invisible person. Okay, so I will say that we are used to Marvel films Mm. today being amazing, but I cannot imagine that if you saw that back in 1994, was it, that Mm. trailer, you'd be like, that's going to be an amazing movie Mm. because, no, no, Mm -hmm. it does not look good, even for the 90s. It looks like, to give you all a cue of the aesthetic, a lot of people compare it to, like, the Toxic Avenger, if you've ever seen one of those sort of underground culty sort of movies. Well, it looks a lot like Passions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, this wasn't a dodgy time in filmmaking. Like you said, Independence Day came out around this Mm. time. Titanic came out a year after this, two years after this. Like, Mm. you... That looks dodgy. Yeah. <laughs> it 
the looks dodge. Oh, bless them. Okay. Yeah, I think they just love the Fantastic Four so much that they were just excited to see any representation of Anything. them on the yeah, screen. Okay. Um, so they're spending all this money traveling around the country to go and meet with the fans. And then finally the premiere date was announced that had been coordinated by the director and Roger Corman. They announced that they were going to premiere the movie in Minnesota in January of 1994. And then after it had premiered, it was Mm going to be released in 500 different cinemas around the country. Mm -hmm. And then... Everyone involved in the production was served with a cease and desist order and told that they had to stop all promotional activity. They weren't allowed to speak publicly about the movie anymore. They had to just go home. It's over. Forget it. The premiere was cancelled. People were given their tickets back and it was just made very clear in the media this movie is never going to be released. Okay, keep going. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what was the... Re- I have questions, but I. what was the reason? So in the background, all of this had just sort of kept escalating and it was all kind of being orchestrated by Uncle Bernie. It was kind of like a big game yeah. of chicken. Marvel didn't believe that he was going to allow things to go as far as they did. They were pissed mm-hmm. from the very beginning that he'd started a production three days before his contract was supposed to expire. Like, it was just so brazen Mm. and they were so annoyed that he was only spending a million dollars and working with Roger Corman. They knew it was going to destroy potentially the franchise forever. It was embarrassing for them. Yeah. Um, And so they were obviously very concerned. And at this time as well, they had just started to build Marvel films, which then ultimately became Marvel Studios. So they already had Mm. the plans to start making these movies for themselves. They tried to bribe him and said, if you just stop production now and give us back the rights, we'll give you this big lump of money. He said, you can give me the money, but I will also keep the rights. And they, that is what they (laughs) disagreed on. Yeah, well, that's because that that makes no sense. I know. (laughs) And so Marvel were like, no, you can keep the rights and have no money or you can take the money and give us back the rights. And Uncle Bernie basically went, I'm the one who's got the power here, so you will give me both or this film will be released. So it was all Right, so he's saying give me the money so I can make a good movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or I will release this embarrassing one. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's like a big baby. I know. And he didn't let anyone else in on the game. He just kept arguing mm-hmm. with Marvel over what they were going to give him until it finally reached the point that the CEO of Marvel Films, Avi Arad, found out that the premiere was going ahead and he just went, okay, enough is enough. You can stay on board as a producer. You can keep the rights. We'll also give you millions and millions of dollars just for God's sake. Shut this thing down. Make it go away. Get every copy of this film and give it to us so that we can destroy it. And oh no, that's what Uncle Bernie finally did. He got what he wanted, and <gasps> the cast and crew were the last to find out that this thing was oh never no. going to be released. They'd put in all of this time and effort and love and enthusiasm. So many of them were totally out of pocket, and all they were getting in terms of benefit was experience. They couldn't even get exposure because no one was ever going to see them in there. Um, And they started to learn more and more about how they'd been manipulated and exploited over the course of an entire year, pretty much, and figured out that Uncle Bernie had been the bad guy this entire time. And they were just so confused because he didn't need to let it drag out 
for this long. But, of course, the fact yeah. that he did let it drag out that long meant he got more money and he got to keep the rights to the Fantastic Four. Um, well, I guess, yeah, it is. He kind of did need to because it was it was the risk of people seeing that incredibly embarrassing film mm. is what made Marvel go, ugh, fine, you can have everything you want, just please don't humiliate us. Yeah. So He played it expertly. Um, smart. A lot of the people who were involved in the production really wanted to get their hands on a copy of the film, at least so that they could show someone, look, this is what I'm able to do when I'm in a situation where yeah. I'm working on a tight time frame with no budget, but they weren't able to get their hands on a copy at all. No one knew what happened to all the copies. Avi says that they were all destroyed um, in yeah. the hope that people will believe that there's no hope that they'll ever be able to see the movie. Uncle Bernie tried to explain to the senior members of the production team that this wasn't personal, it was just about money and it was just about the ownership to the rights and he apologised. But in my mind, that would just make it so much worse if he's standing in front of you saying, yeah. guys, please understand, I only did this to benefit myself. I know. <laughs> I know that you put your heart and soul and dreams into this, but it was just about me yeah. getting what I want. I had the chance <laughs> to make a lot of money and keep something I didn't want to lose. You can see the bind that I was in, right? <laughs> and, of course, he did not share any of the money that he made with the cast or the crew or even the musicians who paid thousands and thousands yeah, of dollars yeah, yeah. to that orchestra. And the story was picked up by a few magazines that uh, this is a weird sort of situation that seems to have happened yeah. and it's a bit unclear what's going on, but then they just sort of dropped it and moved on and everyone kind of forgot about it. Um, so what happened? Did he go on to play a part? Because I know when I was working at the movies in the, I think I started working at the George Street Cinemas in like 2007, um, the Fantastic Four movie came out around mm. then, the one with Jessica Alba. Yes. Was he involved in that one? He was. He was a producer for the Jessica Alba, Chris Evans version, as well as yeah. the sequel to that, which was The Rise of the Silver Surfer. So he was still involved all those years later. Oh, yeah, yeah, because that's how long... By virtue it... of the deal he made with them. That's right. It took them that long wow. from 1994 all the way to 2005 to get the next production off yeah. the ground. Um, but they managed to gather up the dream budget that he had for that first Jessica Alba version of $100 million to make that movie, which was critically panned, by the way. Like, yeah. it has yeah, such yeah, yeah, a low score on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, so it itself really was a flop. But the thing was, people started asking questions. Wait, wasn't there already a Fantastic Four movie back in the 90s? Yes. Um, because when you told me you wanted to do this story, you said to me, oh, yeah, there was this Fantastic Four movie that was a big flop. And I was like, yeah, the Jessica Alba one. And you were like, no, no. no, no. <laughs> There's a whole other one. Yes, this is the ugly cousin that they tried to bury. <laughs> so they... The media started asking Stan Lee and Avi Arad when they were doing press for the new Jessica Alba version of the movie, yeah. what happened to the 1994 version of the movie? And they just yeah. kept saying, look, that thing was never intended to be a film. It was never intended to be released. You can stop asking about it. It was never intended to be shown to anyone and no one's ever going to see it. But 
because the internet existed by 2005, the cast and crew were able to get online and share their side of the story in Ah. full for the first time. So Mm. they were out there talking about the fact that they felt completely used and embarrassed and very, very, very angry about the whole thing had happened. They also called out Stan Lee saying he had been coming to the set very, very frequently to spend time with the actors. Yeah, he was giving them character notes and he was bringing snacks on set. So this whole thing became a pretty big discussion in the fandom online and it all started to become a bit of a legend. And then because of all that chatter, it became revealed that somehow some copies of the film had survived (laughs) underground. And over the course of years... Ewing Party! mm -hmm. Yes, get ready, everyone. We definitely need to make this happen. Um, Yes. Out there, you could purchase on eBay VHS or DVD copies, very poor quality of the 1994 version of Fantastic Four, which then, of course, some genius finally uploaded to the internet and it just spread like (gasps) wildfire. So suddenly hundreds of thousands of people around the world have watched this bootleg version of a film that Marvel refused to release, tried to kill, but is now out there and there's nothing that they can do to stop it. And they can't profit from it at all. Had they just released the movie to the people who wanted to see it, they could have actually made some coin. But instead, the damage, in inverted commas, is being done to the brand. Although you could absolutely argue that more damage has been done by the Jessica Alba versions and the Miles Teller version (laughs) that happened later on because they flopped just as badly but were a whole lot more expensive than the 1994 Mm. version. But at that point, Marvel just went, we're not going to answer any questions about the 1994 version ever. Anytime anyone brings up the movie, they just pretend like it didn't happen and say, I'm not here to talk about the past. I'm here to talk about the future. But it's such a great story. <laughs> no, Like if they embraced it, it's like how um, the Oscars organization refused to ever talk about the 1989 Oscars ceremony, which we've done an episode Mm. on, which was the Oscars ceremony that was so bad it almost had the Oscars cancelled forever. Mm. And for so long the Oscars organization just pretended like it didn't exist until one day they were like, oh, actually, yeah, we can see the humour in this. Mm. And then they started talking about it and it made it so much funner and cooler Mm -hmm. and, like, embrace the hilarity. Own your flaws no matter where you are, who you are, what you're doing. If you own your flaws, it makes you so much more likeable on so many levels. Yeah. So (sighs) Marvel still refuses to acknowledge it. Yeah, yep. Never happened, was never meant to happen. No one was ever meant to see it and they just refuse to answer questions about it. To this day, the cast and crew still really want it to be released because they want more people to see what they were able to do. It would become a cult classic. There would be screenings of it, like there's screenings of The Room Mm. and stuff. Like it would become a total cult classic. Yes, 100%. They want recognition for the fact that they could pull together this... You know, they acknowledge it's not a great movie. The dialogue is pretty bad. Mm. A lot of the acting is so embarrassing. It makes your eyes water and the special effects are just (laughs) tragic. But you do have to respect how they pulled that together a couple of days after Christmas in the space of just a couple of weeks with only $100 million, sorry, $1 million to go around for the entire production. So... Um, it literally is Bowfinger. I know I keep saying this, but I just so badly want to go home and watch Bowfinger now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
And oh we'll post the link to um, this movie as well so you can watch that yes. along with watching Bowfinger and then you can watch a really great documentary that was made in 2016 called Doomed and that interviews all of the cast and crew about <gasps> their experiences in making the movie. Um, and oh, I badly want to watch that. There's so much more detail in that than I've described to you and when you actually get to yeah. see the costumes and see the sets, it is <laughs> it really <gasps> brings it all oh, to life for gosh. you and it's a very sort of you can really empathise with the fact that all of the actors and a lot of the members of the crew just turned a blind eye to so many things because all they were focusing on was the opportunity, the opportunity, the opportunity. And you can just understand how sickening it would have felt for them once the opportunity was taken away from them for them to sort of be confronted with the things that they were willing to overlook that entire time. Um, But they're all they're able to laugh about it today, which is good. Yeah. You'd have to, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, even just watching that trailer, I was like, oh, boy, <laughs> this is this is awesome. Mm. This is awesome. I mean, it seems to have achieved what Cats didn't, which is it's so bad it's good. Yeah, yeah, it is. It has a really yeah. good pace to it. That is the best compliment that I can mm. give to you. There's no sort of dull, boring moments that are overdrawn. There's a lot of ridiculousness and there's a lot of times where I do sort of take a little gasp and think, why do they want this to be released? Are they sure? Um, but then when you sort of reevaluate, you go, was I entertained for an hour and a half? Yes, I was. Roger Corman built his whole career on it. He never claimed yeah. to be, you know, Steven Spielberg at all. But, he, you know, he sort of accepted the fact, I make schlock. I make really cheap, yep. cheesy things that people want to come and see and are willing to pay money yeah. for. So that's what I'm Nothing putting out into that. the world. Yeah. Well, look, if I was in that movie, I'd be proud. Yeah, they deserve to be. Yeah. They tried their hardest and they did the best they could in the situation they found themselves in. And <laughs> it's so patronising. They tried <laughs> their hardest. They really did show up and do that. <laughs> they just, they really did that thing, didn't they? <laughs> didn't they just they do did. a little thing there? They did, yes. Oh, that was good. That was really fun. I can't believe that actually happened. I know. And that, I mean, you can't cast Marvel as the bad guy in this situation either. I, like, oh, no. I can understand what it's they really did. It's really Bernie, the really. The bad guy was Uncle Bernie, yes. He died in 2011. Um, he yeah. did sort of deny a lot of this thing, the, these allegations that have been made along the way about what his motivations were, but his story yeah. seemed to just keep changing along the way. And at the end of the day, he was the only person who got exactly what he wanted um, a whole lot of mm. money and the rights to the movies. Um, Did he make anything else? So when his Fantastic Four got pulled and they were like, fine, we'll give you the money, develop the new one, and then the Jessica Alba one came out in like 2005 or whatever, did mm. he do anything in the 10 years in between? I have absolutely no idea, did not look into that. I wonder if he produced anything else. Ooh, I want to know. Mm, quite possibly. So New Constantine was the name of the company that he owned. Okay. which was based in Germany. But um, for the amount of money yeah. that he was getting just from owning the Fantastic Four by that point. He could just sit around. He was fine, yeah. He didn't need to do a whole lot more. No need to make any more pretend movies. Mm-hmm. Well, that was excellent. Thank you so much, My pleasure. Jacob. Um, we give you just the gist, but if you want more, Jacob, uh, we'll put it all in the show notes. Mm-hmm. 
Um, follow us places, subscribe. They tell us to tell you that and we always forget. <laughs> and um, uh, buy tickets to our shows. Anything else? Shit. We're always bad at this We'll part. see you next week, Adelaide. We'll see you a couple of weeks after Melbourne. Yeah. And then stay tuned for the announcement of when the Perth shows and Sydney shows are going to be. And then, yes, we hear you, everyone else who's asking for us to come to your cities. We are trying to plan out the rest of the year. And it looks mm. like we're going to be bouncing around to lots of different places. Yes, So we look forward done. to so, seeing you lots of you uh, soon. Yes. Oh, and the one thing I want to end on, um, because I mentioned Anna Delvey before, did you see what she posted yesterday? So after the um, Meghan Oprah interview, she posted a photo of Harry and Meghan and Oprah sitting there and she had um, like superimposed one of her own jumpers because she's selling merch now onto Meghan and underneath it Anna Delvey wrote, I also know what it's like to lose my voice. Oh. So she was comparing herself <laughs> oh, to the royal family. God love her. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. I love to hate her. Anyway, that's it. There'll be more on her, I'm sure, in the coming weeks, months, years. Can't wait. I hope she. I hope she makes a fake movie. Oh, it'd be amazing. All right, love you. <laughs> love you. Bye. Bye. Listener.